Hello, and welcome to Climate Fix Podcast. Here we dive into evidence-based solutions to climate change and various other pressing environmental issues. This is your host, Phil Ord. And this is your co-host, Colby Kirk. This podcast is created by Americans for Nuclear Energy, a pro-nuclear environmental organization. We take no money from industry or special interest groups. All donations are from individuals like you, interested in a grassroots scientific movement to solve the world's most pressing scientific problem, global climate change. We hope you approach these ideas with humanism and an open mind. Our mission statement is as follows. Nuclear energy is safe, cheap, plentiful, clean, and efficient. It has the capability to stop and reverse climate change while addressing the ever-growing demand for electricity globally. We strive to educate American citizens about this technology and to dispel misconceptions with facts. We firmly believe that both human civilization and industrialism can easily coexist with a healthy environment. Join us in helping to plan a prescription for a feverish planet, or as we like to say, a climate fix. This episode is called A New Type of Climate Activism. Basically, climate activism today seems to be very vocal and involve a lot of disruption with very little concrete solutions. And I think that's what's causing a lot of animosity towards many of the activists. Activism is needed to make progress on the greenhouse gas emission issue. However, it has to be evidence-based and pragmatic. If not, it's just a bunch of talk. Our guest today is Zeon Lights, here to talk about a new type of climate activism as she is a veteran environmental activist and climate change warrior. She has parted ways a bit with traditional climate activists in her vocal support of nuclear power as a solution. Here's a little bit about Zeon. So Zeon is a former spokesperson and media coordinator for Extinction Rebellion UK and editor of Extinction Rebellion's Hourglass newspaper. She's written for The Metro, The City AM, BBC Wildlife Magazine, and Resurgence, among others. She's recently made headlines for her outspoken support and advocacy for nuclear energy as an essential role in combating climate change. She's had numerous media appearances, including BBC World News, The Andrew Neil Show, Politics Live, and Good Morning Britain. She's the author of the book, The Ultimate Guide to Green Parenting, and Only a Moment, in addition to a new book coming out called Zero Waste Kids. In 2018, she gave a talk at TEDx University of Bristol called Don't Forget to Look Up. It's about stargazing, changing the way we look at the world, and how to contemplate one's place in the universe. The Daily Telegraph called her Britain's greenest mother. The Guardian praised her for being an eco-pragmatist, happily heavy on science. She has a master's in science communication from the University of West England, and recently became the director of Environmental Progress UK, a pro-nuclear energy environmental group. That is a lot of accomplishments. It's going to be so fun to talk to her. I mean, clearly this lady's been in the trenches when it comes to uh, basically saving the planet in any way possible. I'm very excited to talk to her because I think we need to really rethink the way we approach trying to get progress done on the emissions issue. Uh, It's basically just a bunch of governments yelling and talking, activists yelling and talking, wanting to shut everything down. Clearly, this is not how society will operate. Uh, We need solutions and we need them fast. And there is no time for dogmatism. We know what the problem is. And I believe we channel the problem and the solution into a a very specific type of uh, climate activism. How about you, Colby? Yeah, I think this is an important story because uh, what Zion is doing is is really showcasing what will need to happen with a lot of people, you know, casual climate activists and also high profile people like Xeon, um, who publicly come out and say, hey, nuclear is essential for fixing this problem. Uh, nuclear is one of the most misunderstood technologies. It has some of the highest potential to fix the problems that we're facing, um, not just in fixing climate change, but also fixing poverty at the same time. And it takes a lot of courage to come out and say, hey, this is what the science is. You know, the nuclear we'd be building today is not the nuclear from 40 years ago. A lot of the arguments against nuclear don't hold the water that we've 
thought they might. And it really takes stories like Xeon's for that to move forward. We've sort of seen this before kind of with, uh, you know, George Monbiot or um, James Hansen, for instance, the icons of environmentalism and uh, climate activism are coming out and saying, hey, we need nuclear. We aren't going to fix this problem by beating the drum of the old green narrative. And um, that's a very important message to send. And not only does that sort of make headlines and, and give visibility to this issue and put nuclear on the table where it needs to be examined, but it also will help others who are in positions who might be realizing that nuclear is the answer or might know that nuclear is the answer, but they're just qu uh, quiet about it now. And, um, you know, being a science communicator in her position, I think we're going to have a very interesting discussion about this. Exactly. Well, without any further ado, here's our conversation with Xeon Lights. Xeon, thanks for coming on the show. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. So, Xeon, after writing your first book called The Ultimate Guide to Green Parenting, you went back to school to get a master's in science communication. What led to this decision? Ultimately, it was to do with my book, the response that I had to my book. So, The Ultimate Guide to Green Parenting came about because as a new parent, I found it very difficult to work out what the evidence-based ways were to raise children with a low carbon footprint. So I'd been living with quite a low carbon footprint myself for a long time. But when it came to doing it as a parent, you know, I just had I just heard so many, you know, what I can only describe as myths, um, so many ideas thrown at me that weren't backed by evidence. So I started researching the evidence and some of it, you know, the myths kind of held up to um kind of held up to evidence. And some of them were just completely the opposite of where they needed to be. So I started, re, you know, um, doing more and more research and people became very interested in it and, you know, asking me, well, how did you, you know, research getting this bike with a child seat for, you know, for your daughter? What, you know, what's the best way to do things? And and so I, um, I pitched it to a publisher and they accepted it and it had a, you know, chapter on transport and it had a chapter on diet and things like weaning and it also had a chapter on vaccines and I felt that it was really important to have that in there because um, you know I don't separate social justice issues from environmental issues I think it's very much the same thing and um, what I didn't anticipate even though I have I have friends and had friends then who are anti-vaccination what I didn't anticipate was just the strength of the response because of that chapter so I had all kinds of um, emails from people saying you know, great book. It's this chapter's helped me um, with you know weaning or with um, you know transport. But I don't like your chapter on vaccines. You know, that was the sort of response I was getting from people, and I would respond and say, you know, the the the, the scientific method that informs the other chapters is exactly the same in that chapter. And then I'd get kind of people saying no because you know those scientists are involved with big pharma and all these kind of conspiracies coming out. And some of the you know some of the mail was quite bad I, I would describe it as hate mail <laughs> and um yeah my I just was kind of yeah. like wow maybe I should have known that this was going to elicit such a strong response but I didn't really until that foray into the uh, anti-vax community and I thought well you know some of these people are my friends I want to be able to um talk to them about this without it just becoming you know a polarized us versus them kind of thing and I want that, you know, I want, want them to understand that, it, you know, this is what the evidence says. And that the book was absolutely not telling people how to live. It was just showing them what the data is. So if you look at the chapter on vaccines, it's not me making a strong case for why you should vaccinate. It's me explaining why people vaccinate, you know, and how it works. And so um, I thought, well, maybe, you know, that's not it's not reaching people the way um, that I wanted it to. Um, I mean, you know, it's probably it did reach the kind of target audience of people who were just they were curious to know more and you know they wanted that information but there's this whole other group out there that um that needs to be um communicated with in a different way so that was really why I went back to university to do a master's and I cho chose UE University of West of England because a lot of the kind of research that I saw uh, in science communication comes out of that department um they have a really great program there and yeah I learned a lot about kind of the science of communicating 
science, basically. Um, and an, another thing I'd add on that is that, you know, that even as a journalist, um, for many years before my book came out, I did science writing and there's no requirement for science writers to have any kind of training in the field. And so that often as well, you know, can can lead to, you know, as I'm sure most listeners to this podcast are aware, can lead to all kinds of problems with um, misrepresenting evidence is not always intentional. So it's really imperative for me to um, actually study it and work out, you know, what is the best way to speak to people who have different views than you or, or views that are, you know, like fundamentally um, in opposition to what evidence is telling us. Well, science communication as a field is certainly important. And, uh, you know, there is plenty to learn from it. Um, so how would you say you see the larger field of science communication engaging with the topic of nuclear energy? Nuclear energy really needs a rebrand. This is what I often say to people. If you look at renewables or you think about renewables, you know, most of us have this great image of kind of the sun shining and the wind blowing, you know, the really positive branding when actually the reality, you know, is that they still um, require resources, you know, um, they still require manufacture and they take up a lot of space or wind farms take up a lot of space. And with nuclear, it's the opposite way around, where um, there are lots of good things. You know, it's a, there, nuclear um, has a potential to help lift people out of poverty, you know, without pumping more greenhouse gas emissions into the atmosphere from fossil fuels like we did, um, which then can tackle climate change. It also um, could play, play a really important role in air pollution. And unpicking all of those issues in people's minds is a huge um it's just a huge um task at the moment it's it it really just nu nuclear needs more advocates it needs people so people often say to me why don't you speak out for renewables it's exactly what i just said that it doesn't it doesn't need people to do that in fact what needs to happen is there needs to be a balance we need to be able to criticize renewables where it's appropriate um you know, um, like, for example, I don't know if anyone's seen this recently in the news, but um, kind of indigenous tribe living in Norway has been, you know, taking um, taking people to court over there over wind farms that are proposed, a wind farm that's proposed that would just, you know, consume quite a lot of the land. I mean, they, you know, these things, they do take up a lot of space. They um, do. And as soon as I started speaking about that, people just really, you know, what really kind of laid into me why are you criticizing renewables and I said well, we have to be able to we have to be able to just have a realistic discussion about no energy you know, is about, yeah, yeah no energy uh, is perfect exactly and and then they say well you don't do it about nuclear and I said well I, I am happy to do it about nuclear but the thing is nuclear only has criticisms people have so many criticisms so I'm ha I'm trying to balance it by talking about you know the the good elements which are, are are not talked about like air pollution like um you know poverty eradication these are really important points i think climate change people tend to kind of get but the other things you know they're they're equally important so really um we need more science communicators in nuclear and um what's exciting for me is that a lot of people are now coming out and doing it more and there's kind of a community building around it um, and I hope that that will help to change public perception of nuclear. Absolutely. Yeah, and I, in my opinion, the uh, the journalism around nuclear is pretty abysmal because um, there's just you know there there's not enough trained science writers, in my opinion, and that's why you know science communication as a, as a degree I didn't even know it existed is is pretty awesome, and uh, I'm glad you uh, you know went that route because you're right. Nuclear does need more, you know, science communication advocates, and because uh, that because it it really just has a branding issue. So it's quite a new thing as well, science communication. Um, the unit that I studied at is one of the few in the world. You know, people come from the world over to study there, um, and as I say, a lot of the research in the field comes from that department. But it's a the, the need for it. Um, people recognise the growing need for it, and um, you know, we have a medical school here at the university. Um, and I met one of the science writers from that team who would write kind of the press releases of the groundbreaking research they're doing 
in that department and she she wrote something that was misunderstood or missing you know maybe maybe deliberately misinterpreted by the press that led to national headlines and she felt so awful about it that she'd come on this course to learn how to avoid that happening and and since then they've now set up a science communication department in the medical um in the medical department at the university so i think it's growing all the time and it's um that's you know that's a really that's a really great thing that's really positive it can't um, it can't develop quickly enough, in my opinion. Definitely. Well, uh, moving on, um, you know, we're starting to get into the kind of the activism part of this conversation. Um, there's an impression many people have with climate activists is that they have a constant talk of disaster with no real concrete solutions put forward besides some vague, radical restructuring of society. Would you agree with this criticism? Yes and no. So what I would say about Extinction Rebellion, for example, um, they have they have some they have some good ideas, and one of their demands is um, for citizens' assemblies to decide policy instead of politicians, because they say it's a more true form of democracy. They say that um, it would be more difficult for vested interests to play a hand. And there is some research behind this. Before I kind of, you know, supported that demand, I did some research and they citizen assemblies have been found to work in this way in different parts of the world. So, you know, potentially that is a kind of, you know, maybe it is quite radical, but I think, it, you know, it is an evidence-based kind of solution that, you know, one day could work in society. But then at the same time, um, is, you know, are we going to have a radical restructuring in time to tackle what's happening to the planet you know um at the same time we're calling for net zero by 2050 we, you know policy needs to be made now i don't think we really have time to try and fix all of the problems and then say right let's deal with those greenhouse gas emissions so i think kind of there's a, a bit of a contradiction um in that in that demand but at the same time i would say i kind of like the idealism of it you know i kind of like that people come together and they try and present something um, you know, just fresh evidence base. And, and and the critical thing for me with the citizen assemblies is they say, so it's like a jury system, right? It's like we we already use a jury system over here um, in courts. And it's people sitting down, you know, listening to the evidence and then deliberating and making decisions on that evidence that would then inform policy. And the people they listen to is the experts. So they wanted it to be, they want it to be set up in a way where it's scientists informing public so you know it seems like a really kind of a, a good idea on paper it's just um it's just um you know probably not ever going to happen quick enough to deal with the things that we're actually uh the, the issues we're actually facing um and I mean that's why you know I've ended up kind of having to step away because I want to focus on solutions right now. And I think that there is nothing more pressing than, do, you know, immediately sorting some of these issues out. And then, you know, then maybe we can look at, you know, how do we have a fairer democracy and have those kinds of conversations? Yeah. And, and that's why I think, like, because I'm ever since I've, you know, learned more about nuclear, I've become almost obsessed with it. And I think nuclear power as a solution could supercharge um, the kind of activism that people are demanding. Like, like it could actually, we could actually really dramatically bring, um, bring down emissions with this one, you know, amazing technology. And if, what did you think, what do you think about that? Well, actually, I mean, yeah, absolutely. But also I would say that um, I feel like the stage we're in now, I call it nuclear denial. So when I first joined Extinction Rebellion, I'd been talking about climate change for a long time. And, you know, I did public speaking on it. And I just found, I wrote articles about it. I just found that you know, my audiences were slim. It was it was a difficult um, topic to interest people in. And for me, that was really kind of, you know, upsetting because I could see that it was a really serious thing that needed addressing. And then this group of people came together and founded this movement that, you know, brought together all these people who'd been feeling the same way for a long time. And when we started out, climate denial was really common. And I don't just mean, you know, in your average person. I mean, the way it was represented, for example... Um, on television when they would have um, kind of news reports you know they'd have some debate afterwards about climate and they'd have a climate scientist and they'd have a climate denier and we actually actively campaigned against that we went and we stood outside the BBC and said you can't have you know we protested saying you can't have climate deniers you wouldn't have you know a doctor and a homeopath this is ridiculous 
Um, and um, we help to shift that um, discussion away from climate denial. This is one of the things that I think Exile kind of almost unintentionally did that was one of the most important things that it did. And it's the reason I joined because I saw that the shift was happening. And I threw my energy into it. And now that's done. You know, now that's happened. Yes, there are still some climate deniers out there, but, you know, consistently over here, at least that the polls show that people remain worried about the environment and it's right at the top of the list of things they're worried about and it's the highest kind of concern we've had um ever in in our record so that that's really great we've kind of done that but the, but when we look at nuclear this is where this needs to happen now so i'm writing articles um about nuclear power they're not heavily opinion based they are talking about the evidence um and i'm really struggling to get them printed and even with journalists that i've worked with before who I've met in person, who I have good relationships with, who've previously said, yeah, just send us whatever you want and we'll print it. They've just given me a blanket no, or not even replying to emails. There's like a real fear of talking about nuclear in a positive light. If you look at the articles on nuclear out there, they're almost always anti, even if it's very subtly done, you know, and, and, and I don't even think that's always intentional. I think that there's a kind of inherent bias. Um, and yeah, that, so Absolutely. This is one of the biggest solutions for climate change, for air quality, for poverty eradication around the world. But we're, it's difficult to have that conversation when we're in this kind of denial stage. And what I'm trying to work on is that that public shift, just getting the public to um, shift their perspective of nuclear the way that XR did with with climate change. And that kind of answered the rest of this question. And it's it's basically, you know, how could climate activism prevent a different narrative? I don't think that a lot of groups will will jump on board with this. Um, you know, Greenpeace have a long history of campaigning against nuclear. Extinction Rebellion are interesting because they don't advocate for specific solutions. Um, and I had a conversation with, you know, some of the people in the team after I left and they completely understood that I stepped away to advocate for nuclear. And they said, look, we're just going to put out a statement saying, because they were getting a lot of, you know, inquiries after I left. They said that we'll just put out a statement saying we don't have a view either way. You know, we we just dis- we believe that citizens assembly should d- decide it. But then a few days later, um, on Twitter, one probably just one of the rogue members who's on the social media team started posting all these kind of pro renewables posts. And I sent, and it's that kind of inherent bias again. And I sent someone a message and said, you know, they're doing this, and that, you know, if you can't do it for nuclear, you can't do it for renewables. That that really needs unpicking. That people these green groups just assume there's just an inherent assumption that um renewables are are going to fix everything you know yeah. and um you know no again no one's doing it deliberately i mean maybe that rogue person was but even then i think probably they probably they weren't you know um probably they just thought well everybody ag- around me agrees so i'm going to write this and then you know those tweets did actually get taken down because that's not how x operates and I, and, I, and i have a lot of respect for them for that but will those organizations ever um lobby for nuclear no i don't think so however what i will say is that from what i'm seeing now um when extinction rebellion came into being there was a lot of kind of steam built up in people you know we didn't we did we just kind of harnessed that in a way we kind of channeled it into action but people were already concerned right about the environment they're already concerned about climate change they just didn't have anywhere for that energy to go and i feel like this is what i'm seeing now since i kind of came out as pro-nuclear um you know surprised a lot of people upset some people but ultimately i've had a, a lot of support from both sides from you know people on both sides of the political spectrum and i think that's important what i would say is on the left it tends to be people who who won't say it publicly but the fact that that belief and that energy is there and that people are getting more frustrated that they you know that they want to focus on solutions does seem to me like there's another narrative coming i just don't think it will be in any of the existing groups i think it will have to be something new and that's entirely fair. Yeah, um, no, oh, I was just going to say really quick, and I I can totally understand the idea of being uh, technology neutral. Like that's why I mean I got in a discussion with my sister, and she's a very big fan of Greta Thunberg, and um, Greta doesn't really focus her attention on on the solutions. She just focuses on the uh, you know the problems. But I think there can also be kind of a a a negative psychology, which is kind of goes into our next question. In which people, especially younger people, um, will feel hopeless and depressed about the perceived planetary doom that climate change and a lot of other environmental problems can pose to us. 
Uh, do you think this is more harmful or helpful when it comes to getting young people involved with climate activism? I think that positivity is needed. I think that climate grief has a role and I've certainly felt it myself, especially as a mother. And it's kind of a natural response um, to, you know, seeing some of the destruction around the world. And and actually, you know, that's not to say that's not been happening for a long time, actually. But, you know, in the world we live in now, it's just it's constant, right? You're just constant. There's a word for it, doom scrolling, where you're just constantly seeing bad news in your social media. And you're exposed to it all the time. And then if you link all of the things you're seeing, like deforestation or natural disasters, whether or not those natural natural disasters are linked to climate change, um, you it adds to your grief. It adds to your feeling of kind of helplessness. And this is an insurmountable problem. And, you know, ultimately, you know, grief could be a useful tool if people are using it to kind of process um you know, loss, and there is loss, there is species decline, um, you know, there, there, there's really awful, awful predictions for, the, you know, extinction of different species. But um, at the same time, I think if it holds you back from action, it's not a very helpful thing. So um, I don't think it should be kind of pushed on people. And there's definitely, there's definitely that kind of narrative. And again, I don't think that anybody's doing it with an agenda to depress everyone but if you listen to some like Greta Thunberg you know um she's angry and she's upset and she's talking about losing her future you know that can make you feel really kind of hopeless and and depressed and she is speaking to a lot of younger people so you know in terms of kind of helping people process it and come to terms with the realities of climate change maybe it could be helpful but I think overall it's quite harmful I mean I've spoken um to a lot of young people who have eco-anxiety and it really worries me and if you look at the you know the statistics is really high numbers of of children now and quite young children who suffer from eco-anxiety and it's just you know it's not it's not good and especially not good if you um you have nowhere to channel it and if you're young you know the likelihood is that you have nowhere to channel it so I often say to people you know find a community um, so that you're not alone with it. Make sure you get help if it's, you know, if you need, if it's so serious, you need a therapist. And also just, um, you know, t- anxiety ultimately is, you know, it, it it works in a fight, flight or freeze way, right? So you you choose, it can be a call, a call of action. You can choose a response ultimately, you know. Um, and if that response is action and it's positive action, then that's great. Then a lot of young people do talk about feeling better. And I think there is some research on this as well, that they feel better when they're engaged with um, taking action, even if it's only kind of action where you're kind of lowering your own carbon footprint. It doesn't have to be um, any other kind of activism. And it's because you're kind of controlling, you know, what you ca- you're you're coming to terms with what you can control. Um, and instead of just trying to, you know, instead of feeling helpless about all the things you can't control. Right. And so I often have these conversations in that way, but at the same time, I think we need to move past the doom doom and gloom type stuff. I think also, you know, if you think about the people, this is this is an argument I often had in XR. If you think about the people who are most saying these things, right, about it's going to be really awful, there's going to be climate breakdown, we're going to have food shortages, we're going to, you know, X, Y, Z thing. Um, they're all people who are very privileged, like me. You know, I have access to medication. I have um, good work. I have, you know, access to food. I am quite well protected in a lot of ways from things like natural disasters. But if you travel around the world, or if you go to where my parents grew up in a little village in the Punjab in the north of India, so my parents migrated from there in the 70s, Britain, um, they already live in that situation. You know, they already live in what we're we're saying is going to be this kind of awful way. So it's a bit about a little bit about having that perspective as well, and um, and step you know just stepping away from this kind of I mean I don't know what you'd call you'd call it, but just kind of really um, intensely focused on our well being and our you know and our future and our children. This this is these are words that are thrown around a lot, and I certainly have felt sad for my children. But then you know again, then I've been to these this village in India where um you know the mortality rate among children is really high because they don't have really basic infrastructure and access to things that we have like medication and um you know hospital care and 
even food, you know, food if the if the weather's bad and they can't, you know, they can't grow enough food, then that that's an issue. Things that I just don't have to worry about. So I think we need to be careful about the way we frame climate change. Instead of kind of, oh, we're going to suffer, it's gonna be really bad for us. Actually, those people those people on the front line are the people who've already been suffering for quite a long time. And that's this still comes back to me, this still comes back to energy. Um, right, because in order for those countries to develop, they now need to do what we did. They need abundant energy, you know, and, and actually at the same time now the kind of developed world is saying, Well, we don't want you to do that. We don't want because fossil fuels are, you know, adding um more greenhouse gases gas emissions to the atmosphere. And we know we know that now. And you know, I'm not I'm not saying that we should pump more out, but at the same time we need to be realistic about what they need. And we can't say that and then also say we well, also can't have nuclear power. We just can't do that because how else will they be lifted out of poverty? And if we're if we're really saying, you know, that it's so bad to live in this kind of breakdown of society, then you need to go and have a look at how a lot of the world lives. So um, that doomism is very, you know, coming from this kind of privileged mindset. And I think that a shift needs to happen around that. And it's quite a difficult conversation, but it's one that I've been having a lot. And um, especially especially if it holds people back from taking action, because actually we're the people with the most power to take action. Definitely. Yeah. And I think there's a spectrum, right? Like, you know, there's the idea of a climate alarmist versus a climate denier. Well, I mean, I think most people are in the middle of being climate realist, like if we don't do anything, you know, some terrible things could happen. So, you know, it's better to have an insurance policy to not, you know, let this thing get out, get out of control. And the good thing about it is that, you know, it doesn't have to get out of control. We have a solution to it. And, you know, of course, we, you know, we're more biased as being pro-nuclear, but I, I certainly feel like nuclear is, you know, I, I thank God, if there is a God, <laughs> that we in, invented nuclear fission because it could be the thing that digs us out of this hole. And they they thought the same way in the 50s and 60s. So, um, But I was just going to ask you, um, there are many solutions to the greenhouse gas effect, and we need all of them. But would you consider nuclear power as like the keystone technology of mitigation, like like maybe the central, you know, like way to do it. Absolutely. I mean, absolutely. You know, the arguments, the more that I speak to people about it, the more I realize how weak the arguments against it are. You know, not just, I'm not just talking about fear of, radi fear of radiation, fear of waste, even things like people saying, oh, well, they take a long time to build. Well, you know what, if we built, if we'd built more nuclear 30 years ago, we wouldn't be in this position you know right um that's that's really the way we need to think about it it's even more of a reason to do it now that's not a reason to say oh well it will take too long we should be grateful that we have a solution and that also this solution can be applied to people around the world who still need energy who aren't in a position where they just have the internet and they have lights that they can switch on after dark because a lot of people don't have that we, they need to have something right and actually what's happening is a lot of those places are being given renewables and they I'm need not. refrigeration. They need absolutely. They they need um. Uh, what's another thing? Electric heaters. They need to be able to have electric stoves. They you know all these things they need. And there are issues now, like in India, where more and more people are relying on air conditioning because it's getting so hot. Right. They're having more heat waves, and it's kind of like, where's that energy coming from? You know, they're not coming from clean sources. So, um. And and our our position over here of being very anti-nuclear, people being very anti-nuclear and people protesting, it does have an impact. So I don't know if you're following what's happened. Germany closing down their plants and now right. France has now done it with Fessenheim, you know, the oldest reactor running for something like 50 years. No reason, absolutely no reason to it's shut absurd. it down. Exa exactly. And, th and at the same time, then our, you know, as happened with Germany, then their emissions start to go back up again. It's it's utterly irresponsible at this stage. Is the people that actually need to go to to develop are not being allowed to do it, you know, because we don't, you know, we're encouraging them uh, not to. But, but at the same time, we're not really giving them any other options. Renewables aren't the option. This is where, you know, it's a really difficult conversation to have because uh, renewable energy has so many um, advocates. Well, they it ha but advocates who don't understand that there are limitations and don't want right. to admit that there are limitations. And I just say you cannot just tell these people that they can have solar panels on their roof and that they can develop in the way that we developed. 
it's just not like no amount of numbers would add up to that you know just look at the numbers and um you know some people just won't shift on it at all I've had that experience um but you know I'm hoping that by talking about it more we can have more of a debate around it and that we can sh help shift that kind of just just you know standard anti-nuclear sentiment and standard pro-nuclear sentiment it's got to be a, a balance in the debate right and uh just a interesting effect it's like if we don't do nuclear now they're gonna we're gonna lock in coal today or tomorrow and people don't understand that we people will burn whatever's cheapest they will do whatever's cheapest to to give their people a quality of life and if that's going to be coal it's going to be coal and you know the united states we we were on track to like people were excited to get rid of coal um uh and they you know there was like Colby, correct me if I'm wrong, but it was like if we continued our pre-Three Mile Island trajectory of nuclear, we would have been completely uh, carbon-free electric grid by 2000. Um, there was one study that basically indicated uh, more than a 90% displacement of fossil fuels. Um, I believe it was up until 2010 for the United States and it, okay. a, a similar uh, similar progression for the rest of the world too. Yeah, and and then just uh, I'm kind of rambling here, but uh, but back to like when we talk about these close closures, every time they close a nuclear power plant, I mean, I, my heart just sinks because I'm just like, look, we're we are losing huge quantities of carbon-free electricity, and I, at some point, I'm like, where are the progressives and where are the Democrats uh, talking about? keeping these plants open? So it's it's the issue in in my experience. The issue is that people. When you say, well, look, this is a zero carbon technology, they say so are renewables. That's really the issue. But they already mm -hmm. believe they they have this misconception, you know, and then I and then I say, well, all right, let's look at how much land, you know, um, a wind farm will take to, to um, create the same amount of energy as this kind of compact nuclear site over here. And I've seen people's jaws drop. You know, when you actually show them the numbers, when you actually get to that point, and and there have been people who've changed their minds, including people in some of these activist groups that I've worked with for a long time, which is why I think there's hope that you know more people kind of start advocate coming out publicly and advocating. Um, but you know, again, it just can't happen soon enough because until that shift happens, these plants will keep closing because the the anti nuclear lobby is very strong. You know, it's very embedded in in green politics and in green activism. Even the fossil fuel industry. Of course, in the fossil fuel industry, because yeah. they benefit from it. Yeah. So to follow up with the uh, scientific citation here, yeah, the study is called Nuclear Power Learning and Deployment Rates, Disruption and Global Benefits for Gone uh, by Peter Lang, published in uh, 2017. Um, the particular quote is, in 2015 alone, nuclear power could have replaced up to 100% of coal generated and 76% of gas generated electricity. So it's in, it's incredible. It's uh it, you know, I, Michael you and I had a conversation with Michael Schellenberger but uh he was basically said, you know, I felt like I was completely lied to about the technology and it's almost the you know, we I kind were. of felt I kind of felt the same way. Like I always I was always interested like when I was in 8th grade I wanted to be a nuclear physicist and I you know, I thought, you know, learning about nuclear bombs and stuff were we're just cool. I like to understand how atoms work, but you know, but then I also like learned a little bit about nuclear power and I was just like, oh, well, that's kind of neat. And in college, I wrote a, a paper in my intro writing class about how, oh, we might need to use some nuclear, but you know, I was told it was dangerous. And when I realized it really was not dangerous and it was the safest, I was just like, oh my gosh, this is crazy. Um, so uh, yeah, I've, I, I think we could build a, uh, a, a uh, you know, a system where people are very interested in nuclear and would want to kind of have it be like one of the central planks of it. And I think that there is, um, we're going to move in that direction. And I, you know, uh, if, and I'm, I'm, I'm excited about that in the future. I was just speaking to someone the other day um, in another interview about how, it's so, I mean, you, I, I wouldn't say that I had been lied to, but I had been duped in the same way that everyone around me was kind of duped. And then they just dupe other people. <laughs> if you're yeah. in these movements, it's just so, no one's kind of 
hitting you with hard evidence. No one's kind of trying to convince you to be anti-nuclear. It's just so normal to be that you don't even question it. If your friends are just going off to rallies, protesting nuclear, you know, you just assume, just really embedded. I think that comes from kind of lots of different things. But, you know, over here, C&D used to be a really big movement. A lot of them, those people are really active in activism. And, you know, that's all about the bomb and that all of that kind of fear of weapons bleeds into nuclear power. And they don't even really unpick it and think about it. It just becomes a big, we're just anti this. It just becomes really embedded. And so I was surrounded by that for a long time um, before I started questioning and looking into research, which, you know, not everybody is able to do. Um, you know, and not, not everybody is able to look at just dry numbers and make sense of them, you know, and that's fine, you know, and. And actually, if you look at science literacy, it's not it's not very high. So you can't really expect it either. I think there need to be more communicators. Um, and, and, you know, therefore, when I've started talking about it, people have actually said, you know what, can you just send me a bit more information? Because they're interested and they yep. they don't want to be duped. They don't. And some of them, sure, will just go straight back to no, this is what I believe. But actually, there's a surprising number of people who've come forward and said, wow, that's really interesting. I didn't know that. Um, which is why I feel there's kind of a shift happening, but also that, you know, they haven't necessarily intentionally been lied to. It's just become, um, it's just become a really, you know, politics is so polarized. It's almost like if you're on this side or you're in this group, you have to believe these things and you don't even question it. And it, that's a dangerous thing, you know, ultimately. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what I found with my green parenting book is I wrote this book and then I found, wow, lots of green parents are anti-vaccination. <laughs> Who knew? <laughs> um <laughs> just kind of hadn't really come up against it before even though I'd been in that community and speaking things for a long time suddenly I realized all right you know what I don't ascribe to something that this kind of tribal this tribe ascribes to and that that makes me a bit of an outlier makes me different and now I have to work out how to deal with it and it's the same thing now with nuclear where you know I don't really you know I'm still I could say that I'm still part of that tribe I still care about the environment I still am an activist, but this this thing has changed because it's important for me that ultimately, if there's any tribe I belong to, it's it's evidence based. Because I just think there's no point in doing anything if you're just going by gut feelings. You know, you could even do more damage, and, and this has happened where more damage has been done. I don't know if you saw the um the thing about agroecology in um nor not no sorry um agroecology in Africa in Africa. African farmers. Um, anyway, it's a method that they've been applying there, thinking that they would help people and help lift them out of poverty. And actually, the research now has come back saying it's actually probably keeping them in poverty. Um, mm. You know, and, and I know lots of people who speak out for agroecology. It's it's called like the sustainable way to farm, and actually, it's absolutely not. It's absolutely not the right direction to go in. And that's another conversation that we need to have with people. It's the unintended um, consequence of of ideology and not facts. So, interestingly, younger people have much less of a negative bias towards nuclear power. If we taught youth about the promise of nuclear power, would that change climate activism for the better? I think so, and I think that shift is already happening. So, a lot of people who have reached out to me from these green movements. Um, who either want to know more or they actually are privately pro-nuclear te- do tend to be younger people in my experience. That's what I found. Um, yeah, you know, it's a real kind of old school thing. The old school activists, the kind of CND, you know, ban the bomb activists are the ones that seem to be just really entrenched in anti-nuclear ideology. And there's there's not really any um, debating with them, sadly. Um, so I'd say, yeah, there's a generational divide, but I think that that's all that shift's already happening. It would be great, however, if we were teaching the basics about this kind of stuff and, you know, just really basic engineering as well in schools. Um, I don't know if that will ever happen, but I think it's really, mm-hmm. um, you know, it would it would help. It would help a lot with um, helping people to make evidence based decisions. The only place I learned about um, nuclear power besides my own self-interest was uh high school chemistry and i'm like man man they should be talking about you know different sources of power in middle school even or you know elementary school or i guess you you guys would call it primary school or yeah i forget um but but yeah it's uh you know it's it's interesting and i've actually been to some local extinction rebellion uh rallies here in in denver colorado where i live and I was passing out pamphlets and like I, the, the people who 
had the like, you know, most interest were the younger people where they didn't even know much about it. And, you know, of course, there were the veteran kind of old school environmentalists there that were just like, you know, yelling at me is just like, you're trying to poison our kids or something. And I'm just like, the evidence doesn't support that. So, um, and, uh, and, and, and another anecdote is I, I went to a, a, a Bernie Sanders rally. He was running for president um, and he was against nuclear. And I had a sign outside the rally that said, Bernie is wrong to reject nuclear power. And I got a lot of support and I was so amazed. And it's, uh, I got in a really good conversation with some college age kids and they're just like, yeah, I agree with you. And yeah, you know, he's actually wrong on this issue. And, uh, it, it was kind of heartwarming, you know? Yeah. That's been my experience too, that, um, this is what I keep saying to people who are afraid to talk about it publicly, that actually, you know, it's not, you're not just, you know, losing the support of everyone in your kind of tribe, like actually there's more support than you think. And there's also this kind of movement of pro nuclear people who are really great, you know, moving, uh, walking into that movement has been, um, has been a really positive experience. So I, I'm encouraging people to do it. So when we talk about like social movements, uh, I, I actually kind of agree with a lot of the climate activism. The problem is, and I think a lot of people's frustration is, is that there's, you know, not, they aren't, people aren't offering solutions. Like when I, cause I'm on energy, like threads online all the time. And one of the biggest complaints to, you know, like someone like, Greta Thunberg, but again, she's only 16 years old, I think 17 now, but um, is, you know, she's just like, she's like saying she wants us to panic and, you know, the, you know, we needed, she just calls for change. Well, what kind of change? And in, in, in my mind, um, you know, right, uh, certain political movements or, you know, major movements, you just need a very clearly defined goal. Like, you know, be it civil rights movement, apartheid, stuff like that. Um, and I was, you know, I was wondering now that the limitations of intermittent renewables are being realized, do you think nuclear could be that new, clearly defined goal? I think there's still a lot of work to be done with renewables. As I said earlier, people just don't understand that they, that it's intermittent. They don't understand how much space they take up, how expensive they are. Um, there's a lot of kind of myth busting to do around all of that. With Greta, I have a lot of respect for Greta Thunberg and her work. Um, I think it's incredible what she's doing as a young person, but I have seen her um, on Twitter, you know, um, criticizing coal, which absolutely, you know, completely agree with that criticizing you know countries that are using fossil fuels but she's also criticized nuclear the one thing i haven't seen her criticize is renewables and so i wonder if there is this kind of similar to what i was saying earlier and happened in xr where it's just kind of an ideology thing it's just assumed to be the solution um so i i completely respect her saying unite behind the science but you know we, we need to actually we need to actually make sure that we are presenting evidence-based solutions and renewables at the moment, people don't really understand that renewables aren't where it's at. And they're still saying to me things like, um, oh, well, if we funded them more. But if you look at Germany, they put billions, right? They put some over, it's like over $500 billion, right, into their energy wind, as they called it, um, into, re into renewables. And it wasn't sufficient. It wasn't sufficient. So they had to then go back to using fossil fuels. Their emissions went up after they closed, started closing their nuclear plants. That's also something that, um, people don't seem to know when I tell them about that. And I wonder if that is to do with this kind of nuclear denial bias in the press, that they're not getting this information. Um, until that happens, there will not, you know, there will not be a, a movement, a, a, a social movement that's pro-nuclear or really pro-evidence. I think that these things are coming together. So one thing I'm working on is Stand Up for Nuclear UK, um, it's an event that I'm organising for the 12th of September in London. Um, it's bringing together pro-nuclear advocates and science advocates from around the UK. There's a lot of people already interested. You know, we've got speakers, we've got stalls lined up. I mean, a little bit kind of unsure what will happen at the moment because it looks like we might be going into another lockdown and that might mean that we have to postpone it. But what I would say is from that, it, it does look like there's the energy for a kind of 
you know, rad a radical movement. Let's be honest, in environmentalism, the most radical thing would be to be pro-nuclear because it's 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 uh, it's so unusual and so different to all of the kind of typical things that environmental movements get behind. Um, it would be radical to have a truly evidence-based movement, but, you know, we absolutely need it. And that's, I mean, that's where I'm kind of throwing my oar in now, trying to trying to help that come about. Right. Yeah, exactly. And I, uh, speaking of like kind of a, uh, a, a new goal, did you see that uh, recent like protest outside of Greenpeace where a bunch of nuclear people were starting to turn against what, you know, the nonsense Greenpeace was saying about it? Did you I see did, that? I did see that. Um, it was um, outside... Greenpeace during the week that they were closing Fessenheim, wasn't it? I think that it's really important that we have more of that. And I think there's more on the horizon. There's a few projects, kind of grassroots projects that I'm involved with that will hopefully go in that direction. Um, but again, it's we're a little bit restricted, you know, the same as Insects Rebellion is now restricted by COVID because, you know, we can't have mass gatherings. It's very difficult to kind of get on the streets and protest now. But I think that's what nuclear really really needs and you know the the march for science that we had over here a few years ago were really popular and really helped kind of shift people's ideas a little bit on where you know where they're like you know making them pick where, where their alliance was you know do they just want politicians to go with their ideologies or do they want science-based solutions and 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 that you know that was a very popular movement over here i took my children on a march for science up here it was really busy it was great um but can we do that for more specific solutions? That would be, that that's that's kind of something that I'm working on, and also I think that is the next, um, the next move for, um, social activism. Like you say, you know, with the suffragettes, they had, they had ultimately one one goal, you know, get women the the right to vote, or um, you know, other the, many many examples of many different social movements that have picked one thing and have campaigned heavily on it. And I think actually kind of Exile could have done this because they had their, um, you know, um, nuclear, uh, sorry, net zero by 2025, but they also had citizen assemblies. And I did, I actually, this was one of my criticisms when I was in the organization was it's almost too many things. Like just pick one thing. <laughs> and because even calling for net zero, especially at an earlier date is already, you know, that that's lots of different solutions, right? It's not just one yep. thing. So actually, unless you're picking a few policies that you're going to fight for, it's already a little bit too abstract for most people. Um, and the science really needs to be broken down. I don't mean in a kind of, you know, making people sit through presentations way, but just having that, making sure that shift happens where people understand really basic things like where renewables are at, you know, that it's not anti-renewables to just say, look, the battery capacity isn't there. It's not, you know, look look at what's happened with the projects like in Germany where they have put lots of money into it, um, you know, and then let's look at, let's uh, myth bust nuclear. Let's look at, you know, fear, unpick people's fears of radiation and waste, all of the things that they have that actually often are kind of not based, you know, they're not based on evidence. They've come from like cultural um, representations of things or they're mixing their feelings up with weapons or they're just in a group where the sentiment the anti-nuclear sentiment is really high so they just go with it it's uh it's really about shifting that and shifting towards more evidence and i think that's a really exciting thing because it's not really happened before you think that it would have but it hasn't you know the science communication has been around for a long time but it hasn't it's only recently that I've seen this kind of real shift of people becoming interested in it and and more scientists coming out, you know, and this was, you know, largely because of climate change, I think, coming out climate scientists coming out and saying, right, I'm gonna actually speak about these issues, whereas before I might have just kind of just stuck to just crunching the numbers. I'm actually going to go and do public facing stuff. And that's that's really imperative that we get more nuclear physicists and engineers doing that. And also that, you know, maybe there's some communications training involved because um you know, sometimes the way that things are communicated can have the opposite effect if it's if it's not done in a in a um, positive way. Right, and I think uh, what's what's good is just to have calm, rational discussions with people. Be like, what do we know? Climate change is the problem. What's causing it? Fossil fuels. Okay, now that we know that, what are the solutions? And what I go around as like at climate marches and stuff because I I am a climate activist. Is I just ha I have like a sign that says support all sources of clean energy. And I put nuclear, I put hydro, I put wind, I put solar, I put geothermal, because that 
because that kind of visual um, visual messaging, I think, has an effect on people because then you're just like, oh, I never really thought about nuclear. Well, okay, let's throw that in the basket of of solutions. And you know, I I I think as if we focus on all the different carbon free technologies and costs and benefits of each one, and just kind of have a you know kind hearted discussion with people about it, I think you know climate activism could start to get extremely effective and the fossil fuel industry would start shaking in their boots, you know? You know, we, we kind of talked a little bit about this, but if we could describe a new type of climate activism that centers around abundant energy technology like nuclear, which advocates for lifting up humanity versus austerity measures, uh, you know, what would this look like to you? Well, I think this does exist and it's the eco-modernist movement. I don't know if you know right. about that. Um, it's really popular and been really successful in Finland where they have um, an eco-modernist in each of the main political parties. And that I've spoken to that team. They they got in touch with me after they read my letter, um, my City AM letter about, you know, why I was now campaigning for nuclear. And they kind of, you know, were really interested in, um, yeah, my, my stance and, and, and where Britain's at in that kind of... Um, pro-science realm because they've had huge success over the years in in Finland in getting um, evidence-based solutions kind of on the agenda and yeah we've had some really interesting conversations about that I don't know whether some of it is cultural as well and that you know it's been successful there because it really appeals to people culturally over here I know that um, eco-modernism kind of gets a bad rap it's been um, when it was launched Years ago, it was um, quite heavily criticised in the press by a lot of um, kind of mainstream greens, and I don't know if it can be reclaimed from that or whether we need something new. Um, but I feel like the moments here, you know, the moments here for for that to happen, and right. especially kind of in the wake of COVID, you know, and people just feeling really, um, you know, like there's been a lot of mixed messaging about it. The research, you know, we didn't know a lot about it in the beginning, but as you know, I, I was informed because I listened to podcasts and I follow lots of, um, you know, scientific newsletters. And so I was seeing the research come in. I could see when there was more evidence about, you know, how how um, masks work, how masks um, help to prevent um, you from spreading COVID-19 and things like so, how social distancing works and, and um, you know, I, I was aware of I was aware of the research and what I was finding was people were really confused by what they were hearing from the government. And I think, you know, the government was trying really hard to communicate different things and it was really mixed messages and it, it people found it really frustrating. And more and more people were going then to their own sources, you know, to look things up, which can be dangerous, right? Because they might just be reading someone's blog, which is just telling you lies or conspiracies but um ultimately i think they were just trying to do the right thing and they really wanted to know all right what what is the evidence and that you know that to me is a really positive thing that actually they're kind of trying to take it into their own hands and say what can we actually do that is going to stop the spread of this thing now if we just we just need to apply that thinking on a longer term scale with you know climate change i mean that's as you said that's all it all it all it is is about getting those greenhouse gas emissions down and if we just have a list of solutions that can do that all over the world, then we've got it in the bag, basically. It's not more complicated than that. What's complicated is all the ideology and the politics and the poor communication around the solutions that's um, that's holding us back at the moment. So I feel like, you know, we might be in a moment now where that, that will change and partly because, you know, there's a lot of... Um, we've learned a lot of lessons, I think, from from the communications around COVID and the way that people have reacted um, around the world, you know, I know that America has had some extreme reactions to mask wearing, for example, and how that, you know, um, could be prevented and how, you know, how to actually communicate information to people in a way that leads to positive change. But yeah, like the the idea of evidence-based policy is actually kind of a new pol uh, a newer concept. And I think the more advanced we get as a society, the more we will have to just look at data for everything we do. Um, and that's what I, you know, I think eco-modernism is beautiful. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's an alternative that can in, include so many people from different, you know, 
political spectrums and stuff because it, it, it's just looking at science and you know what can we do to just limit our impact on on nature by basically leaving it alone and it's it, i think it's great and i know some people are like you know i don't like i, I there's one friend of mine in uh australia his name is ben hurd he's a big eco-modernist and he says you know he doesn't really call himself an environmentalist anymore he just says uh he's he calls himself an eco-modernist and you know uh i i it's it's philosophy is great too because it's all about you know getting people out of poverty and and, and stuff like that so i think eco-modernism is 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 definitely the beginning of of the of the movement to you know peace to coexist with nature in a way that not it actually goes against coexisting but allows us to cherish and let nature heal uh going forward i'm definitely interested in it i'm interested in um you know i was talking about tribes and when people have a view in their tribe that doesn't match everybody else's views they might um just ignore it or might be afraid to speak about it because they don't want to lose their tribe that's a natural kind of evolutionary thing right where you know if you did that you could you know be ousted from your tribe and then your likelihood of survival would go down so it's kind of natural in a way and i understand that um and so eco-modernism in my mind can offer people that space so if they're leaving their tribe they have that space to go into you know so i was a bit of an outlier doing what i did leaving it's rebellion coming out for nuclear not really knowing whether i'd get any support and now i found that there is an incredible um group of people but it's not you know it's not in any kind of collective it's not it doesn't really have a name um and some people need that you right, know and, and eco-modernism offers that but i'm interested in why in some places it's really popular like finland it's really taken off and then places like here just completely um didn't you know it didn't it didn't take off and, and people said oh we can't we can't agree we don't agree with that because it's just focusing on technological solutions you know there's something to unpick there as well about why why people who have benefited so exponentially from technological solutions would feel that way zian do you have any final thoughts and uh where can listeners learn more about you you can find me on Twitter at Zeontree, Z-I-O-N-T-R-E-E, or through my website, which is just www.zeonlights.co.uk. Final thoughts. I think that we're in a really great moment where things are shifting, things are happening, and people like me have been waiting for this for a long, long time. I've been interested in evidence and data for a long time. They're just in the in the kind of circles I was in, it didn't seem like those things were important. And I think that is changing. And I don't know whether, you know, it will be that eco-modernism grows or whether we can reclaim that um, to some degree. I don't know whether we need more grassroots movements um, campaigning for nuclear. That's something that I'm working on as well. But I do feel like something is going to come out of this and that, you know, in in a way, it's, it, it, it you know, it couldn't, it can't come soon enough because, um, emissions continue to rise our greenhouse gas emissions continue to rise and really we just need to pool our thoughts and and ideologies together and understand that you know we just have this one planet we just have this um you know one habitable planet in the known universe and we need to you know we need to get our uh, ducks in a row and just just sort out this completely solvable problem put put aside the squabbling put aside the ideology that's holding us back and you know create create something better for our children and future generations definitely i uh can't agree more with what you said um and you know uh that that's what all it comes down to is what's what's the common goal and to build coalitions and you know uh you are really doing you know you are really making a difference uh by uh kind of coming out in favor of of nuclear like this and kind of switching gears and wanting to find a better a better way and i think once we start to realize that there is a better way we can finally solve the problem and uh and i just want to say uh thanks for taking time out of your schedule to talk to us it was my pleasure thanks for having me on the podcast
Well, that was a valuable conversation with Zeon. She offered some really insightful perspective into the world of activism and how we can change it for the better. Again, we want to thank her for the important work she is doing, following the evidence wherever she goes. Definitely. Just talking to her is so inspiring and gives us a reason to have great hope for the future. Eventually, I think the climate movement and greater environmental movement will see the truth about nuclear power. Once they do, I think a large paradigm shift may occur, away from eco-anxiety and towards eco-optimism. Colby, what did you like best about the conversation? Well, nuclear is often omitted in the discussion about fighting climate change, and it's vital that we put it on the table. And I'm glad that Xeon is not only bringing attention to this technology as a solution, but is also actively promoting it as an essential solution. Climate change is a global problem, and so is poverty, which is why nuclear is so important, as it can be the solution to both of these issues at the same time. A new narrative in climate activism is needed, one that recognizes energy poverty as a problem and not an agenda for enforced austerity under the use less mantra. I'm grateful Xeon is coming forward and bringing light to these issues. How about you, Phil? What did you like best in the conversation? Honestly, I'm very thrilled another accomplished and well-known environmental activist had the courage to say and agree that nuclear power really should be the cornerstone technology in any climate mitigation strategy. The literal math checks out, given the very physics of the technology. Oftentimes, folks say they want nuclear just to be one of the strategies of decarbonization. I think nuclear deserves much more space than that. It is of my personal opinion that nuclear power is the optimum solution to the climate crisis. Yes, we need all technology, but I think nuclear has the most important role to play. That's my two cents anyway. So that's about it for this month's podcast called A New Type of Climate Activist. We want to say thanks to Zeon and thank you listeners for tuning in. If you like what you heard and want more content, you can support Americans for Nuclear Energy's Climate Fix podcast on a per-episode basis with Patreon. Link in the description. To support Americans for Nuclear Energy and our general mission, visit our website at americansfornuclearenergy.org. All words. Again, that's americansfornuclearenergy.org. We have a link to donate with PayPal under the Mobilize page. You can also purchase Americans for Nuclear Energy swag under our store page. This will really help us pay for the little things, especially online service fees to keep our organization running. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, and YouTube. Lastly, we really want your feedback. Let us know your thoughts, questions, and concerns. We have a message form on our website under the About section. Or you can email us directly at main at americansfornuclearenergy.org. All words. Again, that's main at americansfornuclearenergy.org. Thanks for tuning into this episode. This is Phil Ord. And Colby Kirk. Of Americans for Nuclear Energy's Climate Fix podcast. We'll see you next time. Audio editing and production by Jonna Adams.